You are listening to the Missions History Podcast, brought to you by the International Mission Board. On this episode, hosts David Brady and Scott Peterson are joined by veteran missionary and former executive vice president of the IMB, Dr. Don Camerdine. Listen in as they discuss the history of missions in Latin America and the role of Dr. Camerdiner, his family, and other partners as they worked there for the spread of the gospel. This is Missions History Podcast. MHP is a ministry of the International Mission Board, and it is hosted by David Brady and Scott Peterson. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, David. How are you? I'm, I am doing fantastic. I'm so excited today because... Um, our guest, our special guest is is Don Kamadiner, and I'm just uh, very excited to have him on the podcast. And we're going to be focusing in on Southern Baptist missions in Latin America. And um, Don will be sharing uh, his knowledge of that history and also about his personal experience. Um, so first of all, Don Kamadiner, thank you for being our guest on Missions History Podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and, and your ministry, and your call to missions? I'm an Okie, born in Oklahoma City, and um, my whole background has been with uh, missionary-believing uh, family. Uh, my mother was my royal ambassador leader for nine years, and uh, every Saturday, if I was in town— I was hearing the call to missions hmm. and in that old-fashioned way of royal ambassadors Fantastic. when it was led by the Women's Missionary Union. Wow. I never really considered anything other than being a missionary. I focused on South America, I think, because my father was in Cuba with the Army Corps of Engineers during the Second World War and uh, then later went to Brazil. So my attention was turned south, and um, I, I just found myself uh, embedded in interest in that part of the world. Well, how did you get from growing up being an RA for nine years to being appointed by the Foreign Mission Board? Got to college for my freshman year at Oklahoma Baptist University, and one of the first things I did was write the Foreign Mission Board and tell them, get ready, I'm on my way. Okay. <laughs> and I made sure that every year I had contact with the board, hmm. kept them up with my grades and what I was doing, and uh, went to Midwestern Seminary and continued the same process. And finally, uh, the rule was you had to have two years' experience after seminary, but they came to me my last year and said, when would you like to be uh, appointed? Jess Fletcher asked me that as my candidate consultant. I said, I've been ready for years. And he, <laughs> he said, strangely enough, well, we're going to do a color movie of the appointment service in 1962, okay. October. And uh, he said, we'd like to have a big crowd for that. Would you like to be appointed in October? So I graduated in May and was appointed in October with my wife, Meredith. We uh, were appointed for work in Colombia, South America, and we ended up in the city of Cali. About how long had we been in Colombia? Well, the first missionaries were the Harry Schweinsbergs, and uh, they had probably been there sometime in the 1950s. I don't remember the exact date. And tell me about them. What do you know about, uh, about Harry? Absolute character. Yeah. Absolute character. He had 
as strong an ability as I've ever seen in any individual to influence men. I always had the custom when I was traveling in Colombia to ask believers that I met, how did you come to faith? I was astounded at how many people said, well, Harry Schweinsberg came through here and told me about the gospel. That was just who he was, Mm -hmm. and he could influence men. He was the one who influenced Maxie Jarman to give the huge... uh, donations to the work in South America. Right. Maxie Jarman was a businessman here in the United States who was a great supporter of missions and built a lot of buildings, I think. He set out with an astounding goal of building a cathedral-like building in every capital of South America. Mm -hmm. And he was pretty successful. I don't, I think he made just about every country. Amen. And he was had shoe factories in Colombia. Mm-hmm. He built at least three or four uh, buildings in, in just in Colombia alone. Yeah. So tell us. I think it was Harry. He was Australian. Is that right? I believe he was Australian. They had uh, he and his wife Dorothy had had a term of missionary service in uh, I think Ecuador, out in the jungle. And it came to the end of their term, and they said, you know, there's not much here. This is not the way to do missions. So they came back, enrolled in Southwestern Seminary, and decided to become Southern Baptist missionaries, Mm. which they'd they'd been attracted to. The amazing thing about that story is that he formed a group (laughs) with his leadership ability he, they surrounded uh, themselves with this group of mission volunteers who planned a strategy for Colombia while they were still seminary students. Wow. <laughs> and that strategy included building a hospital. Okay. They designated one. You go to medical school and we head the, up the hospital. Uh, one was going to start the seminary and, and they just, and one was going to do WMU work and they, they planned it all out, and uh, uh, some of it did not work, but a good bit of it became reality across the years. And who were some of those um, individuals that he surrounded himself with to participate? Do you remember? I think Ben Wellmaker was one, but uh, uh, Julius Hickerson may have been in that crowd. I don't remember just how, how that was as far as Hickerson is concerned. Julius Hickerson went to Columbia, and he was designated to head up the new seminary work and was on his way from a temporary residence down on the coast to Cali to see about property for the seminary. The plane crashed, and he was killed. And the story began to circulate that his Bible was found down there and led to the conversion of an individual out in the Uh, in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, That story has uh, grown and multiplied across the years, and I do not know the full truth of it. And I've always been fascinated to know what happened to the Bible. So a a prayer meeting at Southwestern and just sort of a a, a prayer that led to action was sort of the spark of, of the whole Columbia mission. Absolutely it was. And and I have no doubt that Harry Schweinsberg would have been the, the chief mover in that. He yeah. had an unusual ability to influence individuals and, and to uh, persuade them to 
get involved. Isn't that something? And I believe after Columbia, he served in Spain for the remainder of his missionary Curiously, career. we went into Columbia in 1964 and uh, after finishing language study in Costa Rica. And just at that time, Schweinsberg resigned to go to Spain. And uh, by some might say chance, others might say providence, uh, I had a missionary mentor, very popular with the national pastors, and he went around saying to all these boards and agencies, why don't you put Don on to take Harry's place? And so I received many opportunities to serve on the hospital board and the seminary trustees and the loan board, all of which had been occupied by Harry Schweinsberg, and, and just as he left. Of the country we had come in. That was a, a lot of responsibility on a new young missionary, though, wasn't it? Well, it was. It was It was curious. That there were about 60 missionaries in Colombia in those days, and uh, they had two people prepared to be treasurers, and they were both in the States, and uh, or one was on his way to the States on the furlough, and the mission looked around and said, well, Don's new and doesn't have anything to do. We'll just elect him. I'd never kept a set of books in my life. Oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, uh, I went out and watched Don Orr balance the books one month. The next month, I went to his office, and he watched me balance them. And the third month, I took them home, <laughs> and that was treasure. Oh, my goodness. That's a <laughs> baptism by fire. Right yeah, there. It really was. So tell us about Colombia. Tell us sort of for our listeners who maybe they know a little bit about it, but kind of tell us about the uh, that country and some of the unique dynamics of, of Colombia. Colombia is, uh, uh, is really a fairly prosperous country. The, uh, it produces wonderful coffee. It's uh, one of the main suppliers of emeralds. For the whole world, there were two political parties, the uh, conservative and the liberal. Both were very conservative, but uh, the conservative party was heavily Roman Catholic. The liberal party was where most Protestants uh, found their identity. But they had a terrible civil war in the 1950s. Mm. It's still referred to in the history books as La Violencia, the violence. Okay. And uh, terrible things happened. At one time, a Christian Missionary Alliance church out in the interior was burned to the ground, and the entire congregation was put on a train sent to Colombia, and uh, they had to be housed at the First Baptist Church mm. because they'd been burned out. Mm. It was a it was a terrible time of persecution, and finally was ended with a unique political arrangement, the two parties agreed, let's stop the war, and we will just share the uh, political spoils. One term will be conservative, next term will be liberal. And for 16 years, they did that, mm. and it brought peace to mm. Colombia, which was the, the very time we were there. Mm -hmm. There was no drug traffic of any significance when, when we were there, and uh, I traveled the country freely without any without any qualms. And, and so uh, I think sort of our Baptist principle of religious liberty was sort of something that was pretty significant in that environment. It, it was, and uh, we give a lot of credit also to the Presbyterians who 
got there a little bit before we did. Mm -hmm. There are two Presbyterian groups, the, the mainline Presbyterians and the Cumberland right. Presbyterians. And, <laughs> right. and they had a strong uh, missionary witness in Colombia. So how many years were y'all in, in, in Colombia? Well, we were there uh, uh, almost seven years. Almost seven years. Now, I know this is a much later time. This is probably when you're back in the board. But uh, what about the Armero tragedy? Were you, were you already at the board? And what was sort of the response of Southern Baptists uh, to that tragedy? You would uh, get your best information on that from James and Marinelle Giles. Especially Marinelle was uh, deeply involved in the Armero uh, uh, cleanup and uh, they took a, a, a deep personal involvement in that. Uh, I don't remember the the casualty numbers, but it, it was it was a pretty serious uh, uh, earthquake and and uh, volcanic volcanic mm -hmm. uh, eruption mm -hmm. eruption. Those things you never think of it, but in the mountains, when a volcano erupts, it melts the ice mm -hmm. and snow, and that comes all pouring down and causes mm -hmm. a flood. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the things that happened in Armero. And when did that take place? That was in the early 80s. The early 80s. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, so, Don, the next place I think you go, to, you move to Argentina, mm -hmm. but Argentina is a little different. I mean, if we Southern Baptists enter Colombia in the 1940s, but we had been in Argentina for a while. In fact, as far as Spanish-speaking countries, uh, I guess that might have been the first place that we were serving in South America. I, it was, and uh, I think the date was 1906. Okay, when uh, uh, Sidney Sowell uh, went down to uh, Argentina and opened uh, Southern Baptist work. Now there were already some Baptists in the country with a European background, right. including some Irish Baptists. But uh, Sal was a Virginia farm boy who had one of those classic conversions behind his mule, mm. parked his mule, tied her up, and said to the Lord, uh, I'm yours. Mm. Wow. And uh, he, he felt called specifically to go to Argentina, wrote the board. The board said, uh, sorry. We don't have work in Argentina. <laughs> Would you like to go to Persia, which is now Iran? Right. He said, well, I'm glad you're interested in Persia, but God's called me to Argentina. He went to Southern Seminary and got ready to go on his own, and the students at Southern Seminary raised $2,500 to send him <laughs> And the board uh, wilted <laughs> with that <laughs> with that kind of pressure, and they appointed right. him to Argentina. Went down past uh, uh, Rio right. and met the daughter of the Bagbys of right. Brazil, and uh, that ended up in a new relationship. This is all of interest to me because the church he started, the Onsi Baptist Church in Buenos Aires, my daughter is there as a member right now. <laughs> oh, how about Isn't that? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That is amazing. So, so he married into the famous Bagby family. He married into the famous How about Bagby. that? Yeah. But he was another. We, we had these kind of missionaries in those days who were, some of them were just as tough to get along with as you can imagine, but they were personalities who were leaders, and uh, uh, and he was one. I, I, I went to Argentina in 1970, 
And people still told Sidney Sowell stories, and some of them are fabulous stories of of the way he worked. And so you mentioned some of the uh, European Baptists that were there. Um, tell us about Pablo Besson. Well, he was one. I think he was from Switzerland. I think that's right. Yeah, and uh, he was a strong and and he had started some Baptist work mainly around uh, Rosario, but. But uh, he had started a, a, a good Baptist work, and there was there was a need to to harmonize what uh, a Southern Baptist did with what the Besson Baptist did, and they came together and eventually formed a united convention. It left a star a strong uh, uh, theological basis. Besson was a theologian. Mm. And uh, it left a good, strong theological basis for many years on Argentine work. And one thing talking about Pablo Besson was that he also, as I understand it, was instrumental in religious liberty being written into the Constitution of Argentina. He he worked at that, and uh, one of his uh, disciples was um, a prominent Baptist pastor named Conclini. And Conclini picked up on that religious liberty thing, and uh, he approached the Argentine persecution situation under the Perón uh, regime, and he dealt with it not by protest, but by writing a memorandum and, and, uh, and petitions to the government and he was so eloquent that they just could not ignore him, hmm. and uh, there, there are even books of his, some of his letters and the way he dealt with uh, the persecution. Uh, Conclini was a remarkable individual. His son uh, became a prominent pastor, and uh, was also uh, one of the pastors at that Once Baptist Church. So, tell us about. The, our work in Mexico. I'd heard someone say that you knew a little bit about one of our missionaries to Mexico by the name of George Lacey. George Lacey was a missionary in the Guadalajara, not Guadalajara. He was, Oaxaca was a, it was a city where he was a missionary. And they had five children. And I don't know what kind of a fever or sickness it was, but it got into the children. And one by one, all five died. Mm. And Lacey said to his wife, you sacrificed uh, all you can have to do. I said, we'll, we'll go back home if you want. She said, oh, no. I've given this much. You can't take my calling away. There is a seminary, the Lacey Seminary, which is a totally sponsored by National Baptists. It never was a missionary uh, organization, but it was uh, sponsored by Nationals in honor of Lacey, who came back and they spent 30 or 35 years mm. more in, uh, in Mexico. Tell us about some of the other places. So you, you're in Argentina, but then you start to move more into administrative work? That was what took me to Argentina. Okay. We had a, a system then that in South America that uh, our area secretary, Dr. Means, uh, had health problems with his wife, and 
they eventually decided to institute a system of field representatives. And uh, one of the, the ones we had was uh, a guy named Hoke Smith. He was living in Cali, was 42, I think, came here to Richmond for a, uh, a minor hernia surgery, and uh, he died the next day. Mm. Just, uh, he had, well, he had a tumor on him, a pituitary gland or some, some gland. But uh, at that time, the, uh, the board asked me to go and become the field representative, but to go to Buenos Aires, and that's the way I got down there. So what would a field representative's job look like? What, would, what were the things that you would do? I was officially to be the interpreter for the board to the missionaries. I guess in many respects, I looked on it as a pastor to the missionaries. I also discovered administration is, is, is work that has to be done. But I think for myself, and I believe for in, almost anybody, if you let the, uh, the urgency of administration crowd out the importance of some other things, you make a serious mistake. Mm. And I learned that if I dedicated everything to administration and book work and so forth, I would grow stale. Mm. But when I would get out and witness to somebody, life came uh, a, a vibrant again. Mm. And so uh, at the uh, during my first term in Argentina, there was there was a young man who uh, was walking by a little uh, little store where they sold groceries. Uh, just a little place, you know. Uh, and he walked in there, and a bunch of fellas were in drinking wine and getting drunk. This uh, this guy said, uh, this missionary, Alex Garner, walked in there and said, you know, the first time ever people ever drank that stuff, it ended in a tragedy. And he told them the story of Noah. <laughs> and, and, they, and they laughed him out. Alex was fearless, but they laughed him out of the store. But one man followed him. And he said, you know, I used to go to Sunday school. I think I'd like to do that again. And uh, Alex brought him the next Sunday to the hmm. church where I was a member and put him in my Sunday school class. And we became fast friends. And, and uh, we made a pact together that for the next term of service, anything he learned about the gospel, he would teach me. And anything I knew about Christian leadership, I would teach him. And we had some conditions. One of them was we would never do anything together that he couldn't do alone. And he was a ditch digger for the water department. But uh, we got up on Saturday morning, took a six o'clock train every Saturday down to a town called Mercedes, and we would just go door to door and begin uh, praying with people and reading the Bible and witnessing to them. And uh, so I found that kind of activity brought meaning to the more administrative kinds of things. Uh, yeah, that I, I love that story. And so with some of the places by the time, I guess, so now we're, 
we're already in the 1970s, maybe. Mm-hmm. So tell us some of the places you would have, the Southern Baptists were working in Latin America by that point. We were working in uh, all of the countries of South America and uh, all of the countries of Central America, uh, except Nicaragua and El Salvador had traditionally been American Baptist territories. Okay. But we began sending people in at there as American Baptists pulled out. We were able to uh, go in there. And, uh, and and so we had work all the way up and down the line. The Caribbean was different because uh, we were the pioneers in much of that. And, uh, of course, you would know a great deal of that because of your parents' work. Uh, I remember the first time I met your mother. Yeah, she to me was a, a classic example of a of a fine Southern lady, and I met her. She was down in the slums in a little storefront, mopping the floor to get ready to start church. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I tell you, my my mom, she was fearless. In fact, when it went, in fact, they went to Guyana in the 1960s. There were um, a lot of political turmoil. And she was very afraid. And so my dad said that they prayed together that God would remove the spirit of fear. And 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 my dad always would say, I think God overdid it. <laughs> <laughs> and so my mom was fearless. She would go into the worst slums with the drug dealers, didn't matter. And she'd witness and love people. And and um, you're right. That's a, a remarkable um, lady and many missionaries just like her. Tell, tell us about some of the missionaries that stick in your mind as doing a sort of a very fruitful work that you would like to, for us to, uh, uh, as a younger generation, to remember some of their contributions? Well, I I find myself, frankly, remembering uh, your parents uh, up near the very top of that list. Otis had this ability again to, he was not so much with adults as he was with young people. But every time I saw him, he would uh, he would have a new group of young people that mm-hmm. were meeting with him, and he he had this way of saying that if if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you've uh, you've got to always be ready to give a testimony. You got to always be ready to die, mm-hmm. and 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 every time I would go around him. He insisted, well, these young people have a testimony they want to share with you. <laughs> and he, uh, it, was, it was just pretty impressive to me. Um, so I, I, I remember his work. I remember the, uh, the work of Don Orr, okay. who was in Colombia. And he was, a, I think, Southern Baptist's first music missionary. Oh, okay. I, I think that's right. There's an a old biography about the oars and it addresses that did did they end up in uruguay at some point or no no no, not all in colombia they were all in colombia he had been a fighter pilot during the second world war that's right he was a man of unusual bravery Mm. at one point during that violent period in colombia the seminary was meeting downtown that was before they had their campus and he decided he'd better go down and be with the students because there was a threat that the mob might come after the students. That's Don Orr. Wow. 
And sure enough, he got down there with them, and they were all huddled in the back room of this place. Mm. And the mob started beating on the door. <laughs> and Don went to the front door, and he said, Welcome, how can I help you? And he faced the mob down. That was wow. uh, Don was a music missionary, but he was he was also fearless in stating Baptist beliefs and doctrines. He took strong stands on any kind of issue that came up, and he was uh, respected for the fact there wasn't anything he wouldn't say and wouldn't do if he if he felt it was needed. Tell us about a Baptist work in Venezuela. Well. It was at one time, I think, one of our stronger uh, mission works. Uh, they they had some good plans and were making them effective. I, I really can't say what the situation is because I'm out of touch. What I know about Venezuela now is so many of Venezuelan Baptists are now members of my daughter's church in Buenos Aires. Okay. They, they've uh, gone in there. That's quite an international church, which has people from all the surrounding countries in it, but uh, many Venezuelans. As far as I can tell, I think Venezuela as a nation has been absolutely destroyed. And uh, it will take who knows how long before it can recover when they finally get a different leadership. So, Don, what are some of the things that, that you and your wife, Meredith, that you were especially important that you would say you learned about, about God during your, your missionary service? One of them, uh, I think the whole question of prayer and how you communicate with God became more real to me. We were in Argentina for 10 years. I think we had eight governments, <laughs> revolution, election, revolution, military, and again. And there were many there were many nights we went to sleep to the sound of machine guns and explosions around the city. And it was a time when every missionary was considering, you know, what's the future? What's right for me to do? And and I I, I thought a lot about how should you pray in a circumstance like this. And I never one time prayed for my safety. I prayed that the Lord would give me joy in being there at that time. And I discovered that prayer was answered in the most dramatic way. I, uh, I never had 10 years that I felt more joyful than I did during those difficult uh, uh, days of transition and change in Argentina. So and that is one thing. In my prayer life, I don't pray for things that I don't believe can happen. But I look for something that I really think needs to take place and can take place. When I was studying Spanish, I reflected a lot on how do you communicate as a preacher. And I came to the conclusion that uh, pulpits and uh, anything that separates you from your congregation will hinder communication. I had never been able to preach without notes in English. And I began to reflect on that. And my prayer was that I could preach in Spanish without notes. Hmm. 
And the first time I ever preached, I preached without notes in Spanish. So uh, that was that was one of the kinds of things I learned had to do with the prayer and the uh, the way you think about prayer. So when you look back on it, Don, and you think of of these years, what are some of the things that just stand out uh, above everything? Would you would you do it again? Oh, I would never consider anything else. Um, I I look on the the passage of time and the mission as a river, and sometimes the river goes through bumpy waters, sometimes it runs into logs, but the river keeps flowing. And uh, there the times that there are logs in the way, you know, you look back and say, "I wish that hadn't happened that way." But when I look at the whole river. I'm pleased to have been a part of it. Mm. And, uh, oh, yes, I'd do it again gladly. That's wonderful. One of the things we've asked our guests to do is to um, to pray for us. And we, we want you to pray specifically for Latin America, but also if you would just pray for us as Southern Baptists that we would, uh, in this generation, that the um, fire and commitment to missions would um, would increase, that we would um, just uh, go to an even higher level than we ever have before. And I would love it if you would pray for us uh, and lead us uh, into the Father with that request. Our Father, we do thank you that we've been a part of the river of your purposes. And I thank you, Lord, for uh, those occasions in which you have given us meaningful opportunity to have influence. I thank you also for those moments in which we did not see so clearly what we would hope to have seen. Mm. But I pray that you would keep us aware that your purposes never cease yes, Lord. and that they will finally end in the ocean of your goodwill. Yes, I thank you, Lord, for my personal experience in being a part of what you were doing in Latin America and the Caribbean. I thank you for the joy of knowing that uh, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ mm. and in his gospel. Yes, and Lord, I ask again, that you would renew your spirit in our times, mm -hmm. make us freshly aware of what you want to do and how you want each one of us to be a part of it. I pray, Lord, that there would be a freshness in the preaching of the gospel mm -hmm. and the call to missionary service specifically. And I pray that there would be a whole new generation of young adults and young people who would sense your calling and would make the commitment to follow that calling. I pray that you would give them the gifts of ministry that would be adequate for the tasks you want them to do. And I pray that as a denomination, we might always be known as ambassadors for yes. Christ, yes, Lord. in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
Don Kamadiner, thank you for being our guest on this episode of Missions History Podcast. And I'm David Brady. And I'm Scott Peterson. Till next time, thank you. You have been listening to Missions History Podcast, a production of the International Mission Board. Join hosts David Brady and Scott Peterson each week as they discuss significant people, places, and events from the history of international missions. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.